The Present by Stefan Molyneux Chapter 25 The day she came to life, Rachel awoke with a raw throat. The previous night had been full panic mode. The television was dark, the radio intermittent and terrifying. The lockdowns were enforced with seemingly random brutality. Everyone was being told to wait. Army trucks roamed the streets with loudspeakers on the roof, commanding everyone to stay inside, to be patient, to wait for food. Her parents' attitude was incomprehensible to Rachel. They sat in lethargy, staring at the walls, gripped in a distant mental fog. Their self-care had fallen away. They smelled. Their hair was greasy. Their breath foul. Dad, she would whisper, what's going on? He smiled in an empty fashion. Oh, just waiting, you know, like they say. They were running out of food but didn't want to ration. They're coming, they're coming, her parents would repeat. They fell to stories of ancient days, their own childhoods, their courtship, their early marriage. Rachel learned more than she wanted to know and was reminded of the glow of meteors as they burn up in the high atmosphere. A bright light, an illumination, then an ending. It's almost like they're handing me their memories before they go. Rachel pleaded, she begged, she cajoled, she commanded. But it was like wrestling with fog or anxiety. They did not fight. They did not obey. They did not agree or accede. They nodded slightly or shook their heads in such a tiny manner that it looked like shivering. They prayed for acceptance. Rachel felt as if she were going insane. Mom, Dad, seriously, I don't think anything... I don't think anyone is coming. We're going to have to try and get to where Cassie and Ian are. And we have to do it before we run out of food, run out of energy. We have to have enough to bring with us. Rachel paced her hands, gesticulating rapidly. I have my university backpack. I found my old Adidas high school bag. We have to walk. All the gas has been stolen. Why don't you get up, walk around, loosen your muscles a bit? You're both healthy. It's just a week and a half away. An adventure. Come on, she urged. What if no one is coming? Oh, Rachel, chided her mother. You're taking this much too seriously. It's a strange time, no doubt. But my mother went through the war in England. It was much worse than this. She had to hide in shelters. She peed herself one time. She was so scared, remember? Ah, I miss her. I like her advice at the moment. Not that yours is not helpful, my dear, but you really don't have much experience in this, so... Ethel's voice trailed off, as it so often did these days. Bert roused himself, slapping an E. Come on, let's play some canasta. There's no point panicking. 
They were sinking slowly into the quicksand of avoidance. And not exactly pulling Rachel down with them, but hypnotizing her with eerie patience. And they would play canasta, and the cards would swim before Rachel's eyes. Mom, Dad, no offense, but you really need to wash and brush your teeth for heaven's sakes. You really don't want to get a toothache right now. Her mother said, I miss Arlo. This complicated statement hit Rachel squarely in the solar plexus. It was obvious misdirection and a stated preference for him rather than her, as well as a rebuke for her nagging and a veiled criticism of Rachel's indifference to her boyfriend? Former boyfriend? Bert said, He'll turn up with Crystal in tow. You'll see. They are shooting people! Rachel wanted to scream. Rachel imagined her parents patting her hand and telling her that they had had a good life, but hers was yet to start, so she should go and have her adventure. Even in her fantasies, euphemisms were the only language. Late one evening, the electricity flickered and failed, and they sat in the pitch dark. Bert got up and groped his way to the window. He pulled open the curtains, but no one could tell it was so black outside. Probably just recycling the generators, he said heartily, and it wasn't even forced. It sounded totally genuine. Be back in a moment. Rachel went and opened the front door. It was a deep, cloudy night. She saw a few glimmers of what, for a mad moment, looked like wildly bright fireflies. Then she realized it was cell phone flashlights waving around. The only neighbors they had been close to were from Poland. They had vanished weeks ago. Everyone all right? cried a male voice from up the street. Silence. We're at 189. Let us know if you need anything. No one replied. The sound of doors shutting, people retreating back inside, echoed like slow applause up the street. The power did not return. The army trucks did not return. The radio was dead. Rachel panicked. Her father tried to reassure her. Rachel, we have relied on the authorities our whole life. They've never let us down. Checks come in every month. Roads get repaired. Mom gets her medicines. All for free. If it's bad here, it's not going to be any better anywhere else. Dad, we're practically out of food. Now the freezer is out. What is the plan? What is your plan? He suddenly demanded. Race all over Hell's Half Acre trying to find some compound in the woods upstate? How? We don't have any maps. There's no GPS. And people are supposed to stay home. 
Rachel had a sudden savage memory of being grounded when she was 16 after she snuck out through her bedroom window to go to a party where frat boys threw toilet rolls into the tree branches. Her father continued, Think, Rach. We travel by roads, we get caught, or worse. We travel off-road, we get lost. We don't have food for 10 days, not for three people. And we never did. You can't carry that much unless you want to have a freezer and a generator on your back. <laughs> not likely. He gestured at the window. We're all here. We're all in this together. Humanity. People aren't going to just let us rot here. What if, what if they can't help us, Dad? He shrugged. Then there's no help to be had. God above, we can help ourselves. Her father almost snarled. Forget this compound. I'm sure Cassie and Ian are fine, wherever they are. Where are we going to go? If there's some place with food resources, then every jerk with a gun will be standing guard. The only unguarded places would be totally empty. I had some training in my youth, you know. We would just be expending energy for nothing. Plus, the, 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 the dogs, they're not coming, screamed Rachel. Bert was shocked, she could tell. She said, why are you keeping me here? He said nothing. What was there to say? He couldn't dare her to go, remind her she was a free soul, tell her to think for herself. That would be like demanding she do a gymnastics routine with no prior training. Let's talk outside, said Bert grimly. In the backyard, they stared at each other. The grey light from the boiling clouds reminded Rachel how old her father was and reminded her father how tired Rachel looked without makeup. Why isn't Arlo here? murmured Bert. That wasn't him, said Rachel, looking away, her voice faltering. We saw him, or his body double, in the background of that newscast. Not many people have that hair. It wasn't him. Or he was asleep. Yeah, maybe. But he's not here, my dear. He sighed. <sighs> Who do you think is stronger, Arlo or your mother? Rachel said nothing, still looking away. Bert continued. <sighs> he's like a... What did he call himself? A, a, a gym rat? He did some martial arts. He probably never left our place. How much food did you have? You lived on takeout. You said so. He doesn't eat much. Her father's tone was soft. Rachel, he couldn't have lasted there. He went out. I don't think he made it. If he was okay, he would be here. But he's not. And I know you, you blame us now. Blame you? I know you're going to go, said Bert, tears filling his eyes. Come on, you have to. I think that's why I've been talking about my life. He laughed sadly, <laughs> like Crystal's stupid book.
He took a deep breath. I just don't know how to tell your mother. We've had long lives, good lives. I think you should go. I'm not selfish. I just... I don't know how to explain it to you. He sniffed. We've never been good at... He laughed. (laughs) Nothing. But please, don't blame us. We didn't make the world. Rachel's lips were quivering. I don't get the blame part. My dear, did you have the life you wanted? Asked her father, his eyes wide. I don't know, murmured Rachel distantly. I don't know that I had a life. Just a lot of experiences. Somewhere all the wheels came off. I never knew how to guide you in this world. It was too different. We were already trying to get pregnant when she was your age. We'd been married for three years. Every time we tried to guide you, you got mad. More tears came spilling down his cheeks. I don't know why we never tell the truth until it's too... It's like the curse of the world. I love you. I'm sorry. He reached forward and they hugged and melted into each other. Dad, it's okay. We don't make the world. We we just try to survive. Ethel opened the screen door and spoke in a sing-song voice. What's going on? Who died? Rachel and her father clung to each other for another long moment, both silently cursing the world's endless interruptions of honesty and intimacy. They dried their eyes on each other's shoulders, then turned to Ethel. In the faded fluorescent afternoon light, her face was grey and haggard. The subcutaneous fat that had formerly propped up her fading middle-aged face had vanished. Her features hung like an old sail in stagnant air. Come on, we still have some iced tea left, she cried, turning back inside. Both feeling the oddness of the impulse, Bert and Rachel touched their foreheads together, regretfully parting to return and resume the dying theatre of optimism. Rachel packed and readied herself in the middle of the night. She took as little food as possible. She wanted as much water as she could carry, but the taps had stopped working, so she took half a dozen bottles instead. She packed her cell phone, a solar charger, a small notebook and pencil, headphones. She had to push down any impulse to sentimentality, but still imagined 
dying alone in the woods and had a strange and desperate need for future generations to know who she was and what she wanted. She had a strange smile in the darkness. Aunt Crystal wanted me to work on her memoirs, and here I am planning to write my own epitaph on the road. Rachel possessed all kinds of fantasies about finding Oliver's community, then rousing staunch male loyalties and returning with a posse to retrieve her parents. But she could only sustain these ideas by refusing to probe any practical roots or by picturing herself as a sky-high sexual demon who could possess men's souls with a wink. She remembered how she used to love striding into restaurants in high heels, pulling the eyes of men behind her. Now, she was simply hoping to make it through the wilderness without starving or being eaten or assaulted. A sob caught in Rachel's throat as she felt how desperately she wanted Oliver to be with her on the journey. He would know what to do. He would know how to fight, where to hide. In her dreams, he arrived at her parents' house in the middle of the night, confessing his love and devotion, then carrying them all somehow to his sanctuary. But she knew. Reality had invaded her vanity to the point where Rachel absolutely knew that while she was the protagonist of her own story, she was only a bit player in his. That strange girl from months ago. Yeah, you might wonder what had happened to her once in a great while. And as she thought, her breath caught. But Oliver was doubtless deep in the woods, shirtless and chopping wood while his wife watched in admiration, cradling twins one on each hip. She would know how to surrender to a man as he surrendered to her. My whole life, I never wanted to be dependent on a man. Now this is where I am. Most everything she packed had been made by men, even the backpack. Staring at all the girly essentials she always kept at her parents' place, Rachel laughed incredulously at all the junk she would have to leave behind. Her makeup, her fake eyelashes, her old ridiculous shoes, her push-up bras, her hairdryer and volumizer, the under-eye cream she used her ring finger to apply not too much pressure, her blue putty face masks, all the voodoo designed to defy the slow death of time, all would have to be abandoned. I am traveling for ten days to find the man I crave, and I will arrive looking like a deranged gypsy. But Rachel knew, somewhere deep down, that her journey 
would be the most attractive thing about her. I must shed vanity to find love. I am here to trade value for value, not to be admired from below. And she imagined that there could be no babies for him yet, no wife. It was too soon. Rachel imagined letting go of her need for others, for their thirst and desire to prop up the nothingness of her self-regard and to be seen and accepted for who she was deep down, not the flesh thrown on her bones by blind nature, her soul, not just her skin. And Rachel knew that this was what Arlo craved too, but could not let go of his greed for attention enough to even acknowledge, let alone receive it. And she thought of Arlo's possible body in the grainy background of a chaotic newscast weeks ago his blonde hair blowing in the smoky wind, his impossibly flat frame barely filling the bottom of the fractal shadows of the black bag. And I never told him where refuge was, thought Rachel, shuddering as she remembered his touch, his gaze in the candlelight. Not the first man in history to be murdered, by manipulation. Not the last, either. Rachel knew that she had wanted to will his actions and felt ashamed. I never begged, never asked, only demanded and threatened and bribed with my body the body I did not earn, and sold for a desire I did not earn either. As she packed, Rachel imagined a simple life of real work, being loved for nutrition and security rather than merely desired for flash and flesh. You can't eat an Instagram. She imagined returning with Oliver to rescue her parents, but knew that he would refuse. She had imagined, countless times, texting back and forth with Oliver, demanding that she be allowed to come with her parents, and him refusing, shielding his absolutism behind the calculus of calories. I have to bring them. They are my parents. They cannot come. Your parents are there. They work. They raised me. They supported me. They accepted my ideas. Unfair. That's just a word used by people with nothing to negotiate with. I can negotiate. With what? Don't tell me. With myself. Very predictable. What else do you have? Do you have a girlfriend? No, because I generally get the same offer, which is resources for sex. That's everywhere in the animal world. 
Only a soulless person would say that. It's not sex for resources. That's prostitution. What is it then? It's resources for resources. Food and shelter for child raising and support. You offer sex. You don't offer children. It's empty. I want kids? No. You just want resources. You'll trade kids for them, I guess. But that doesn't make you a good mother. No one understands you like I do. Not even my mother. I'm having this entire argument in my head, for heaven's sakes. I know what you will say. Let me bring my parents. I will be a great mother for your children. So I have to feed you, my kids, and your parents. (laughs) Unfair, LOL. I will apologize. For what? For all women. (laughs) Good one. You don't want that? No. I don't blame women. The system screwed you up, then screwed itself. Someone has to be blamed. Maybe everyone's little decisions, nothing more than that. What do you mean? Everyone who rejected how bad the system was. Kind of unmeasurable? Everything gets measured in our conscience. So you don't care about me? Not when you're manipulative. It's an honest question. No, it's manipulation. Why do you care about me? What if I had no resources, no safety, no food? I would care. Your brain is wonderful. That's nice to hear. So, my parents? You assume we are negotiating about your parents. What do you mean? I haven't even said you could come. Oh. What do you bring to the table? I'm a hard worker. You were a journalist. (laughs) Part-time, LOL. I worked hard on my makeup. I did sit-ups. Now you're just trawling. True. What else? I can be funny. I love you. You're too much at war with yourself. So are you. That's why we are texting. Go on, be clever. You want to save me. Be a a Viking. Carry me off. Win against the world. Defeat the great matriarchy. Stick it to the liberals. Lord it over me. You know you do. Yeah, clever enough. I bring my parents. I can entertain you for the rest of your life. I'll think about it. And Rachel could never get him to agree, even in her own mind, which normally obeyed her like a trembling slave. She felt her thoughts expanding as her vanity contracted. It was like walking up a seesaw as a child, then tipping it from upward to downward. Unguessed potential glowed upward in her mind, lit by the hot sparks of necessity. I will get to him or die trying. She knew it was madness, but it was a madness that matched the world and so felt relatively sane. As Rachel lifted the latch, On the front door, her mother's voice hit the back of her head. Where are you going? To get some food. Why is your backpack full? Maybe I can trade some things? I don't know. Ethel sighed and crept down the stairs. 
Using the white banister, she slowly lowered herself to sit on the landing. She stared at her daughter. Rachel felt a sudden urge to stop blinking. She strove for something to say, but came up empty. After a while, her mother slowly got up and walked down the final steps towards her. Reaching up, she pulled Rachel's head down and kissed her on the cheek. I'm sorry, she whispered. For what? You never stop wanting to protect your children. We've done a bad job, Ethel sniffed. We drove home from the hospital with you at like five miles an hour. Your father child-proofed everything. When you fell down the stairs once, I thought I would die. You and Cassie, my jewels. We worked so hard to keep you safe, but I guess we missed something. I want you to be happy, Mom. I know, she said gently. Both ways. Both ways. Her voice thickened. Will you come back for us? Rachel's dark heart tore in two. Dual responses hung in her mind. I don't see how, she whispered. She felt her mother's old head nodding slowly on her shoulder. Never feels like the right time, I guess. Rachel wanted to ask her mother what she meant, but was terrified of the answer. Ethel lifted her own head. Faint moonlight streamed in from the small square windows over the door. Looking down, Rachel could see the tiny gleams of her mother's tears. This is what is meant by Noah's flood, she thought. The world drowns in old regret. Ethel smiled suddenly. You have your phone. When the power comes back on, you'll tell us where you are? Of course, first thing. I want you to tell Cassie how much we love her. Give a hug to Ben, too, and the new one when he comes. Because life goes on. Even without you. Ethel's eyes suddenly sharpened. Does your father know? Rachel hesitated. If I say yes, she knows we've been lying to her. If I say no, she might panic. Oliver's voice rose in her mind. Just tell the truth. Yes. Ethel nodded slowly. It's nice. He still protects me. Her hand suddenly clutched Rachel's arms and she leaned forward. Find someone who loves you, Rachel. Don't end up alone. Whatever you have to give up to be loved, give it up. It's not worth keeping. Look at Crystal. Thanks, Mom. I love you. Oh, God, cried Ethel in agony, bursting into tears. 
She immediately clasped her hand over her mouth, taking deep, shuddering breaths. Go, go, I can't stand it, she whispered hoarsely. No, wait, stay. She clutched at her daughter, hugging her tightly for a long, long time. Don't eat each other? The wild thought leapt unbidden into Rachel's mind. She willed herself to avoid the future where it led. They held each other. Regret, memories, and time flowing between them. Rachel felt her soul filling up with love, charging it somehow for the hungry, dark road ahead.